0: Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome again to Just Sustainability: Curious conversations about sustainability, equity, and social justice. Before we get started, I should note, both to provide some context and to serve as a disclaimer, that was really windy the day that I interviewed Hyde. The wind is worth mentioning to you because Hyde refers to it in our conversation. It's also worth mentioning because it messed with my recording equipment, so there's some weird volume fluctuations throughout the recording. I tried to adjust the levels while I was editing, but I couldn't get everything evened out perfectly. So I wanted to give you some advance warning. Anyhow. On the episode. In this episode, I'll be introducing you to Hyde Erdrick. It's actually a little difficult for me to introduce Hyde because she's one of those folks that's really awesome in a whole bunch of really different ways. I should definitely note that she's an enrolled member of the Turtle Mountain Band Anishinaabe. She's an award-winning poet and authored one of my favorite cookbooks. She's also an artist and a curator. And Hyde's also, perhaps most importantly for the purpose of this podcast, an advocate for indigenous rights and sovereignty, as well as someone whose work is often focused around reclaiming indigenous foods, food systems, and foodways. Anyway, here's how she introduced herself.
1: I had a meeting last night, and it was so loud. I had a video meeting, and it was so loud. People were like, what is that noise? I'm like, that is the wind.
0: (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, I think it gives us a sense of place, right? Where in, like, you know, the flat part of rural Minnesota, where it's windy and wintry.
1: Where I grew up on the roaring prairie, or on some days I say the godforsaken prairie.
0: (laughs) Yeah. No, it does feel that way on days like this. I grew up here, so. Oh, you grew up 40
1: minutes from here. Oh, where'd you go up? Wapiton. Oh, that
0: is real close.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, um, I guess we can get started if you want to. Uh, in the the words of Hyde, who is Hyde? <laughs> well, I'm Hyde Erdrich, and I grew up in Wapata, North Dakota.
1: I'm a member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Anishinaabe, uh, Majikwe Indigo, uh, Hyde Erdrich uh, uh Those are my names. I am Makwa Dotum, Bear Clan woman, and I live in Minneapolis
0: now. After Hyde introduced herself, I asked her to tell me a little bit about how she thought about sustainability and equity. I want to invite you to pay particular attention to what she says about access and how she approaches improving access. When you're thinking about sustainability, what are the things you're thinking about trying to achieve? What are the th- topics that you think of? And then when you're thinking about like equity, same thing. Like, What are you trying to achieve? What does equity look like f- to you?
1: Yeah, you know, that's interesting because I generally don't think about the abstract when I'm doing my work. I'm right. focused on... The concrete, the, the, you know, the vehicle part of the metaphor, not the, the tenor, not the content that it's holding, you know, the rose and not love. Yeah. So for me, like I often don't get a chance to just stop and say, you know, my work is about equity. And sometimes if I'm, you know, writing on a grant or yeah. being asked to do something like this, I just get s- stopped in my tracks. I'm like, what is it? How is <laughs> right. that? But, you know, it, there's like, there are levels of equity that I think of. Pretty often in my own work, and they are around the possibilities of access yeah. for for individuals and in, in various arts, right. in food systems, in uh, health in a certain way, yeah, um, mental health and um, for certain and uh, access to our own
0: histories and our own uh, right. sense of our sovereign cultures. Okay, Can you say something more about like how you think of access when you say app access how does one have good access
1: well i can give you you know a very simple example when yeah. i was
0: working on the cookbook one of the first
1: things i did was see where people grocery shopped on the in the upper midwest native communities and looked at uh you know what what i could find about the corporate sites if they were corporations what i could find out from actually visiting them what's on the shelf you know what access do you have to your own indigenous foods if they aren't where you live and how do you get them do you get them you know through a, a micro local uh system do you you know, get your own wild rice or does your uncle get it or your auntie? Right. Now, how do you get your food? Do you hunt? Does somebody else hunt? Uh, does your grocery store carry excess of these things? Does your corner gas station carry seasonal foods that your tribe likes? So that's that's the kind of thing I was looking at. That's an access issue to me. Right. There are places where that is just simply not a possibility. Right,
0: right. None of those different options.
1: Yeah, none yeah. of those options. Oh,
0: okay. So like you're thinking not just sort of the presence of providers and retailers, but like also skills, right? Skills we, and knowledge and you, and you know, and of, of course
1: that. the economics of it and just yeah. being invited mm-hmm. into that process. Uh When I wrote the cookbook, I thought it would resonate with people because I went to people uh, in these many native communities in the Upper Midwest and I asked them, you know, what do you eat? What do you cook? How do you work with your own traditional foods? I wasn't going to do anything purely indigenous uh, foods based like the brilliant Sean Sherman does because I wanted to know what people were eating today and how they – incorporated those things and to encourage people to just you know incorporate indigenous foods into their own days and uh when i started taking the book out and reading it and working often with student groups i'd find out that those students had never had any access to the things their parents and grandparents had it just takes a generation for people to lose that access and the skills and the invitation to learn how to do those things from the, the the elders who know
0: no, I, so I've encountered that, too. When I talk to students, and they tell me stories about going with their grandparents to, like, to gather things, right? Mm-hmm. Like, for example, like, a, um, yeah, I kind of not know who I was talking to, but someone was talking Tip about, it like, a, like yeah, 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 yeah. Or, like, going out and gathering the, the yellow medicine. And yeah. it's like, well, do you know what, what species that is? And they're like, no, no, no idea. Like, do you remember what the plant looks like? No. No. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd have to go ask my grandma. And yeah. then, so it's interesting, because there are people who have had experience doing it but still haven't done it enough. That they-
1: Yeah, that's one of the things that I'm going to talk about tonight um, when I give my lecture here at uh, Morris is that it's a brain development thing. If you don't see the way people gather plants when you're really young, yeah. you lose a certain ability to just immediately identify the shape of the leaf the growth pattern it's um it's not something that people do intellectually it's a pattern matching immediate visual thing and then some sense memory like a lot of older people when they introduce you to a plant they might crush a leaf so you know how it smells they might point out what's around it and when they do that when you're really little and you see them just naturally doing
0: that it's ingrained
1: right Right, right. but if you start when you're older it's like learning a language it's hard it's much harder
0: the next section of our conversation began when I mentioned to Hyde that I first became aware of her as a poet, and then was surprised when she published a cookbook, and I asked her how that happened. Somehow, that question turned into a discussion about climate change, colonization, reclamation of Indigenous lifeways and foodways, and exploring Indigenous identity.
1: Well, you know, the little notes on the top of each recipe are very poem-like. They're like little prose poems. And once I started to think of it that way, it became a much easier project for me. But essentially, I accepted it as an assignment from the great... Editors at the Minnesota Historical Society Press. Oh, okay. Uh, they had consulted with me because I was an author on their catalog already with an anthology Yeah, called Sister Nations. And I said, oh, God, it would be great if somebody did a book about what people eat right now and yeah. what they've shared from their generations and, you know, and how they're passing it on and just give people a chance to, you know, say what they cook with. Right. And uh and I, I even have a title for it. I said, Original Local. You can have that one for free. Just find an author. And <laughs> a few months later, they're like, well, we haven't found an author. You have to write it. Oh. <laughs> so I thought about it, and yeah. it wasn't easy. And, and I got some funding, and I was able to do it. That's cool. But Only in two years, which was extremely
0: fast. Yeah. No, that is actually a pretty quick turnover.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, especially because climate change really affected the foods the first year. And, oh. and in the beginning of the book, I talk about how uh, the ice wasn't strong enough for ice fishing in a lot of places. Yeah. So starting right there, that was a huge disappointment to a lot of people. And I'd been wanting to go out and to learn about traditional ice fishing and so yeah. forth. Uh, later on, the rice crop was, was very scarce in yeah. all over the upper Midwest. <coughs> and I, uh, I went to my home reservation to a mountain and there'd been a late frost and there were no berries and hardly any nuts. So yeah. all the things that I kind of thought about experiencing and writing about were not an option the first year, which was really bad. Yeah. <laughs> but then I wrote about that, about how, you know, we are going to be hit by climate change in a way that other people may not.
0: Yeah. No. So, uh, that actually makes me think, uh, have you ever read anything by, uh, Kyle Powis White? I he, don't think so. He's a philosopher at, a. I can't remember. uh, No, he's, uh, Potawatomi. Oh. Uh, he's, uh, I think he's at Michigan State. He's one of the Michigan schools. (laughs) Either University of Michigan or Michigan State. Um, so he has this, when he writes about climate change, he, he thinks of it as a kind of a similar analogy to what his people went through, right? So, like, I think they originated around Michigan, uh, right? Like, by the Great Wake, Great Lakes region, and then they got displaced down to Oklahoma, yeah, which is
1: most of them, most Potawatomi uh, pot were moved. There's still some in Wisconsin, but yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: And so, uh, and he, Michigan, actually. Yeah, yeah. And so he was noting that the sort of change in sort of surroundings that his people experienced during displacement will, will be really similar to what people now will experience mm-hmm. in the, Midwest, with right because they
1: went to the Kansas like uh you know environment that we're gonna have here so yeah yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's true and then I mean and some things will return to us in ways that they hadn't because there've been such a dearth of um uh wild hazelnuts what we call puck and yeah. now they'll come back because they're they're being successfully introduced south of here so I think that we'll have those and they're very very important to our diets and yeah yeah I mean and you know maple will retreat northward but we have uh relationships over the borders so we'll continue i think to have some for quite a long time have access to maple but wild rice is the big game changer yeah so dependent on the clean water oh yeah lack of storms you know
0: going back to the access right so because it sounds like again the lot of the issues that are coming up will be access ones with the cookbook. What were you trying to like accomplish in terms of like improving access? There's that first level of actually having recipes. So Mm -hmm. people who might have lost some of that knowledge would learn some recipes that use. Yeah. And it would encourage
1: people, you know, just an encouragement and, uh, place people could go to, uh, at, you know, tribal colleges and, uh, historical sites. And, you know, it's just something they could, find in a lot of places that's one of the reasons i was happy to publish with the historical society press because they get their books out there into tribal communities so there was that i knew that it would be something that i could you know go to and bring to a you know cooking uh, or you know the culinary arts classes and i've been lucky enough to be able to do that in many communities in the upper midwest i knew it would be of interest so i thought it would get that support both from mainstream and from Tribal communities, and I knew something else would come along. You know, right after it that would work too. But this is, you know, it, it documents some of the attitude of people at the rise of this right. original foods, um, indigenous foods m- movement. So that's what I was hopeful. But you know, as a writer, I'm sort of a lazy activist. I'm like, right. I write it, you figure out what to do with right. it. You
0: know. <laughs> well, uh, so the part that I, like I find most appealing about original local is the stories. Look, when I read it, I think like if I was a descendant of those cultures. Reading those stories would make me want to think about, right, my history, think about the traditions, the food, like how that family, how those things all tied together. What were you trying to capture with those stories? Because I think that is some element of access, right, just to let people know, like, hey, you're missing something. and you.
1: Well, right, and that they may be hearing these stories and not, like, keying into them. Because I think for me, there's always an issue. You know, I was raised by two teachers. Yeah. I had a great education. I fit in well in the white world. So you yeah. know the the issue of like, what is my my you know owned lived identity as an indigenous person, as an Ojibwe person, and it, most clearly to me, yeah, it's in food, you know, in right. in, in traditional practices uh, and uh, of harvesting and gathering and so, but that was very much a part of my, my life and always interested me. So I don't think we often get to express that it's, it's easier for people to express other kinds of ceremony and other kinds of, you know, dance and other kinds of movement, but the movements of harvesting are actually even part of dance. So there's, so to me, it was an expression of, you know, personal understanding and exploring how our family came to have, uh, a strong interest in food and how I feel that is a really traditional value that people might ignore. They might be hearing right. these stories and not realizing that these are as important as a sacred story, Right. you know, or a story about a culture hero or, and they contain our history too. You know, they, they map our history, where the foods are, where yeah. we lived, why we protected certain areas. That is all about the foods sources that we had.
0: Our conversation then turned to how stories help us connect to culture and how stories are important for decolonization. It strikes me that for a lot of younger folks, they're probably really alienated from those cultural stories. Yeah, they
1: are. And sometimes the stories that I told, uh, oh, the cultural stories are maybe a little more access for them, actually, because people have a hierarchy, you know, that that is more important uh, than, um, you know, learning how to how to process wild rice somehow right. they think that, and sometimes those stories contain those processes right that's, that's what i'd like to point out too you know is yeah. that these stories have food in them often you know so there is a connection
0: there's a connection but i think it might not be as lived as a family though right yeah that's selling, true Telling stories about families and how family gatherings and family traditions tie into those cultural traditions yeah like the, the that, can that can often
1: be true you know um but one thing that I did find out pretty early on that I didn't expect is that a lot of people are cut off from those too. we We've had so yeah. much disruption of our That's family true. structure, you know, starting with boarding school, but also in contemporary times. And, uh, people say, I didn't ever see anybody make any food. You know, we just yeah. bought it. We didn't, you know, or we just, Open a can and um that was not unusual and people say i feel a little wistful about this experience and i'm like well do you have any elders who are alive ask them and you know use that as a way to help with your relationship and and you know people like that idea so i think it is an entry point but um
0: yeah you said earlier that you don't really think kind of about the the practical part right being a scholar thinking about you yeah. write the thing and then people figure it out but it really does sound like you're thinking a lot about different ways of like engaging in decolonization
1: yeah i think so when i when i'm actually able to visit with people and spend time with them or you know um yes then i then i i'm able to sort of switch gears when i'm making it that's really not what i think about right uh, this i might note the moments and sort of put them in my back in my head the moments when i you know served a meal to a lot of younger native people and many of them were like, well, I've never eaten anything like this. I've never eaten local fish. Never, you know, I've never tried any of these, these foods that are kind of greens and herbs and things like that. So what are the things you're thinking about? I'm thinking about the story, the images, the connection, the sort of sensory connection to things, because I know that's how we learn. And I, and I want, uh, you know, I was thinking about my kids. They were yeah. younger and they were cooking alongside me or helping prepare the foods or helping get the foods going on little research trips with me. I wanted them to know that they could be part of that. That was an access thing for them too and that they can share it with other people
0: so yeah well and i actually know one of your kids and yeah. I know for him at least he right i i think you were very successful there right i think, well, and was I, very and I, think I was also kind of <laughs> clueless
1: about that too because i remember when he was uh, applying to college and he wrote his college essay about cooking black beans which were yeah, a, yeah, another yeah. Potawatomi gift to us and yeah and i and i looked at that and i said what gave you this idea and he's like i watched you make a cookbook for two years
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. well no i mean it's true right like i, I, I think it really like i think Seeing the folks you care about do things makes it important to you, right? Because I know right. it's super important to him, and it's something he shares with the people around him.
1: Right, and the, the idea of sharing food, which is just a really essential value,
0: yeah. I think, and that is one that I it makes me
1: really wonder what we're losing when people don't have that moment of sharing right. made food with one another. Right. It's so – it's, like, necessary, like, you know, people talk about – you know, breast milk is the first food and right. foods are the first medicine. And I'm like, that's sort of sacred values. And like, well, there are, are generations of people who got totally cut off from that. So we need right. to recover that.
0: Right. I mean, if you look at the sort of the history of colonization, right, that often was the, the way the U.S. federal government right. tried to assimilate. Uh, right.
1: Cultures. You know, substitute our food for your food so you can't use your dependent. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that was very deliberate. Yeah. Yeah. Whether they knew the science of it or the effect of it or not, they knew that it
0: keeps people in line if you right. force them to eat your food. Or force them – it forces them to have to uh, participate in your systems. Right, exactly. Right, by disrupting their systems of getting food. Listening to Hyde talk about stories and the importance of stories led me to think about Hyde's work as an educator. Hyde's taught in a number of universities and has hosted many workshops for indigenous writers at Turtle Mountain Community College. It struck me that one of Hyde's many contributions to equity involves her helping Indigenous authors tell their stories, and that being the case, I asked her about her process when it comes to teaching folks how to more effectively tell stories. This is what she said. How do you think about access while you're teaching, stuff like that?
1: Well, that's really, that's interesting. (laughs) Do I? I always, my first thought is always, no, I don't, I just do, I don't think. Or Um, do, (laughs) how do you do? What are the things that you do? How do you teach? That was, that was a fun thing being here at Morris. You know, I don't teach in a classroom regularly. I have a low residency cohort of MFA students I work with. I did for 20 years work with undergraduates and it was before I had the sort of authority and ability to take charge of my own classroom but i always taught in community and i always taught about let's find the stories that we do have right and value those stories and don't think all of your stories have to be some you know along the lines of some uh, traditional uh, tale or something out of deep oral history your stories are also the hunting stories they're also you know car accident stories whatever right, right, right. those are actually our stories and the way that they're told and you know, to look at how they're told to have access to the tools to understand what a story is actually telling you right is what i hope for them to have because i think it helps just in life to know that you know people will tend to tell you something that is not direct right and you will remember it better because it's not direct but you'll also have to analyze it to understand what
0: it's Right. telling you right we think in terms of narratives right and we then do. So we have a good narrative we remember the narrative we might not actually know what the narrative is about at first right but when we sit with it for a while
1: yes yeah. exactly and so i like it to teach them how to how to do that with narrative and also to think about memory in poetry um this semester i was able to do some really direct what ifs about food sustainability uh you know i just gave them an exercise of what if food distribution stopped and you were here at morris what would you do and right. tonight at the events that i'm um where i'm giving a talk two of the students are gonna read their responses their what ifs <laughs>
0: that's cool so uh, how do you evoke stories from folks who might not be used to telling their stories so like when you're working with students how do you get them to like Tell those sort of impactful, thoughtful stories. How do you? Yeah.
1: yeah, Well, I
0: feel like everybody has
1: inner narrative. It tends, you know, I've read about brain development. It's very few people don't have an inner narrative. It's how how language begins to work in us before we can speak. We have, you know, an inner language. We also have a gestural language. Yeah. So I ask people to tie their writing to their senses because that gets through a lot of um, a lot of barriers. You know, you don't have to think about those abstracts. You don't have to. You don't have to know what you're writing about. You just have to know how it feels, how it tastes, how it looks. Yeah. And then you begin to understand, you know, why it, you're valuing this image or this thing that you're writing about. So, so I sort of trick them into it. Yeah. And I also, it, I always have people do like a five minute exercise. You can fill an entire page in five minutes if you just keep writing. And that helps a lot, I think. I've, I've never had a class where people are like, those five minute exercises were worthless. <laughs> They're all like, wow, I got a lot in five minutes. So I think that helps. It's sort of meditative moments and, you know, what they call, like, you know, meet, uh, uh, you know centering and pre- yeah. being present and mindfulness. You know, those things are all part of the practice.
0: So it's, it's sort of – it sounds like your approach is trying to just give people the opportunity to just start – yeah, writing. just to
1: tap what they have in there. Yeah, I know it's in there. You know, you probably couldn't be in school if it weren't. Right. And uh, yeah, so they just need to to value it and tap it and um, listen to it. I mean, it's not not every single person is able to do that, but right. I and I do try to have uh, you know uh, com- accommodations for people
0: who that's really difficult for them.
1: But right. a lot of people they can do it. Yeah. And, yeah, I would say most can.
0: For uh, the students, what you need to think of like, accommodations, what are some of the things you might do? So if the, the strategy of just providing them the opportunity isn't working, what are other things you might do to help people tell their own stories?
1: Sometimes people are better at telling an or- their t- stories orally or, or uh, even speaking lyrically like you would in a poem. Right. And so I give opportunities for people to, to talk. So we to- we talk in class a lot, yeah. you know. We get off track, as they say. I think right. off track is really rich. Yeah. You know, it's where nobody's hunted before, right? right, off, right. Off, the tra- off the beaten trail. So I'm, I let that happen a lot.
0: Yeah. I think we're in a good place to end this episode. I hope that you enjoyed the first part of the conversation that I had with Hyde. Uh, I hope that listening to Hyde helped you think more about access, indigeneity, and about the relationship between stories, storytelling, and culture. Next episode, we'll turn to the remainder of the conversation, which is about making learning fun, cooking and storytelling, equity in the arts, and grass. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you have enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.